Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Inside and Beyond podcast, and I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Today, I'm so happy to introduce my next guest, Chris Maki. Chris is a clinical and counseling psychologist and fellow of the Australian Psychological Society with over 40 years of psychotherapy experience. Chris is the author of the book called The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, Enhance Your Mental Health with the Power of Coincidence. He was the resident psychologist and a regular presenter for several seasons on the Australian TV well-being show Destination Happiness. He was also the production psychologist for the recently released positive psychology documentary, How to Thrive. Chris received the Impact Achievement Award at the 2019 Australian Allied Health Awards. Chris has presented at numerous national and international scientific conferences over the past 25 years on such topics as psychological therapy for anxiety, depression, and trauma reactions, drawing on synchronicity in psychotherapy. His mission is to convey optimistic and science-based information about mental health to the wider public through articles, blogs, and his podcast, Psych Spills and Silver Linings. You can find all the links to Chris's work in the show description. Chris, thank you so much for coming to the show. It is such an honor to me. Wonderful to be with you, Natalia, and thank you very much for inviting me. Chris, in your work, you've dedicated a lot of attention to the significance of synchronicity, which is essentially a paranormal experience. You think that it can positively influence mental health, contrary to conventional approach in psychology and psychiatry that labels such an experience as a delusion. First of all, what is your definition of synchronicity and what is its meaning? Okay, well, synchronicity basically means meaningful coincidences. So I think them as a very uncanny coincidence, particularly that links our inner and outer worlds. It, it leads us to feel that in some way our mind and the world around us are synchronized in some ways, hence synchronicity. So one way that might show up is, say, number synchronicity. People might have a certain symbolism to numbers. For me, it's the repeated number six. But for mm -hmm. a number of people, when they start to experience something like this, it's seeing 11-11 on a clock or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then a sequence of numbers might keep on showing up in a very uncanny way, in a way that the person feels it's symbolic or meaningful. So that's one example. Another yeah. common example is if people think of someone that they haven't seen for a long time, and then they receive a phone call or an email from them very soon afterwards or they run into them in a foreign city. And mm -hmm. so it just seems so uncanny. Why is it that I was thinking of that person just then mm -hmm. and then improbably ran into them or heard from them? Again, it feels as though there's some synchronisation, if you like, or a connection between our inner and outer worlds that goes beyond usual rational expl explanations. Mm -hmm. It could be sense. any markedly uncanny, meaningful coincidence. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But what is its meaning? What does it mean if people start seeing those uncanny coincidences? Now, part of this, it comes down to people's subjective interpretation. So it's not like there's some objective meaning to it so much, just like interpreting dreams. But in my experience, in many people's experience, often it can be affirming in some ways. It can feel as though the way that your life is unfolding is right for you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that everything goes very well because 
for me, a very important um, uh, experience I had was about the repeated number six. Mm -hmm. So sixes were very symbolic for me. Well, I didn't plan it this way, but I happened to get engaged at six o'clock on the 6th of June by a series of, well, almost accidents and things that Mm -hmm. intervened. Now, six years later, I was severely depressed and I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital at 6 o'clock on the 6th of June. Now, that's not a good thing to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital, but to me the meaning, that was the one thing that in time suggested to me, hey, maybe there's some good that comes out of this. Maybe this experience in my life is partly meant to be. Mm -hmm. And as a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist, my experience of being a hospital patient over a few weeks was a profound learning experience that greatly helped my career for the next 30 years. So rather Mm. than it being a dreadful thing, it turned out to really have a silver lining to that. And to me, the symbolism of the sixes coming up, it's as though, well, this is almost part of my destiny or life path that might fit in some way. And so it helped me be more attuned to some of the, well, silver linings and constructive things that could come from that. And that that's one of the ways that many people respond to synchronicity. It, it feels as though an ex- you're on a life path that's fitting for you in some way. Yeah, I can, I can probably imagine it is very helpful to have this sense of peace that's coming from it because you kind of feel that you're on the right way despite any challenges that you may face. And it also adds this notion of it's meant to be in a way that also kind of helps you deal with any challenges that you have. Yes, I think it gives that kind of hope. It certainly mm-hmm. adds a sense of meaning to experience if you experience yep. something like being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, but you think, hey, there might be some meaning in this, you're more likely to gain and, and look for some of the benefits that come and, and not be so defeated by it and, as you say, be more accepting of things that happen in your life. So it doesn't mean that every coincidence is is good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there can be experience people have, which is we can call it like the trickster intervening, yeah. and it's as though, wow, that was bad luck for that to happen just at that time. But sometimes also with unfortunate things, you see how they've nudged you in a different direction that Mm -hmm. in some ways was helpful as well. So, again, an unfortunate event associated with a coincidence or feeling disrupted or tricked in some ways, Mm -hmm. that can also lead us to reflect more on our life circumstances, what's important to us, what our priorities are. So it is another way, just like reflecting on dreams, reflecting what the meaning might be for us. I believe that internal reflection in itself could be a good thing. Yeah, I guess it's important to be aware enough to notice those things happening and because otherwise it just may slip through your normal life. Well, let's talk about your book, The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, and I'm a huge fan of it. And it builds up on the ideas of synchronicity that were firstly uh, introduced by Carl Jung and also positive psychology by Martin Seligman. This book really empowers individuals to drive their well-being as opposed to accepting that they're somehow broken and 
the medication is the only way to fix them. So I was really, really inspired by your personal story and you have alluded to it just now. But I'm curious, how did you come to this? When did it start? Did it just start with the number six that you were saying? And how did you go from your scientific, even atheistic background, in a sense, into accepting the role of this mystical or paranormal element such as synchronicity? Yes, it certainly took a bit of a shift and a shake-up for me to be open to the idea of synchronicity because I was very much trained in psychology, a very rational discipline. It's, it focuses a lot on statistics and ways of understanding things objectively scientific studies, all that side of things. So, and I was well schooled in that. And, and I think that there's a lot of wonderful things about those models. I use those methods when evaluating our therapy outcomes, for example. But, um, but, but, but by the same token, there can be a degree of narrowness in that that I wouldn't have been so aware of. I would have always had a degree of in, intuition I'd use in situations, but mm-hmm. I would think of that as a much lesser kind of um, way of appreciating things than rational, logical knowledge. Well, one time I might have been working for a year or two as a psychologist in a psychiatric hospital and I had the opportunity to go to a seminar and it was about something called the wellness model by one of the founders of that, John Travis of Johns Hopkins University. And he was talking about spiritual kind of issues about how our well-being or wellness Certainly, it can be helped by physical exercise and uh, communicating well and being playful in life. And be, then he started to talk about more spiritual things. Now, funnily enough, I was annoyed from the start because he's wearing a caftan. I think, wait a minute, you're meant to be some kind of serious scientist. And he's showing us pictures of a nice fluffy little seagull on the screen. And I think, look, you're showing us pictures of like Jonathan Livingston seagull or something like that. And we're meant to be influenced by this kind of thing. And at the end of the end, I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s and I thought, why aren't the adults in this room standing up and saying this is rubbish? And anyway, um, at the end of the seminar, he said to me, look, I know you might be a bit sceptical about the things that I've mentioned here, but you might be interested to know that a number of scientists have increasingly turned towards spirituality as a result of their understanding and findings from quantum physics. Now, that led to some cognitive dissonance to me because I yep. thought any scientist worth, worth their salt would be an atheist. You know, mm-hmm. how can you believe airy-fairy kind of ideas, like religious beliefs? And, um, but, but that, um, it piqued my interest when he said, you might read this book, The Aquarian Conspiracy, that yeah. describes this bringing together of science and spirituality and, I read that and the thing that blew me away, apart from how well written it was and how scholarly and looking at a scientific side, is when I got to a page on synchronicity, I was reading the book slowly about a month or two after I started reading it, I started to experience an explosion of synchronicity in terms of the number six coming up so Mm. often that there were many other things that happened as well like a fellow, a good friend in my house, I told him I was having these coincidences happening all the time. He said, well, this is strange. When I go to ring a friend, just when I go to ring them, they ring me just at that wow. very moment. And I wow. thought, hey, there's more of this happening. So the way I put it is my karma ran over my dogma. That's mm-hmm. an old bit of graffiti. And, and I thought, well, I cannot just hold to 
some rational, logical explanation for this. There's something else going on. There's another dimension in life that I think I've missed, and that made me much more open to intuitive awareness. Mm -hmm. Clients started telling me more different stories. Like one day I saw six clients and each of them came up with a – spontaneously came up with a remarkable synchronistic story and I thought Mm – that this is just beyond chance. These are quite uncanny things and improbable things happening. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so through a series of events, I'll just mention one example. One client was very isolated. I asked her to think of writing something for me, thinking on the idea of no man is an island. Mm-hmm. In the week in between, her mother had started this literary course and didn't want to do the homework that was set for her. The mother's mm-hmm. homework that was set was to write about no man is an island. Mm-hmm. And I think, hey, there's something yeah. else in the atmosphere um, setting homework for my client mm-hmm. and that hel- helping her along. So six people in one day had examples, not all as striking as that, but several pretty striking. I thought, hey, something else is happening here. Yeah. And where did it lead you? You mentioned before that you also have gone through a series of depression and that also seemed to be synchronistic to you. And, you know, I know from your book that you explored how synchronicity can actually affect your behavior during bipolar disorder symptoms. If you could explain this a little bit for our listeners, that would be great. Okay. So the main thing that happened, my experience is I was more open to intuitive awareness. Mm -hmm. And I'd go through periods without experiencing much synchronicity for a period of time. But when I felt more attuned in some ways, I tend to experience more of it. Well, I faced a major challenge around about 15 years ago or so when it was around the circumstances of my mother dying. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of complication, complicated things happening in my family. So this is a strange thing, a weird thing to happen, but I had the idea that I had so many impossible challenges to face, so many wicked problems that I faced at the time. The only way I could think of doing that would be if I was extremely intuitive and if I found some way of managing certain kind of very complicated family and other situations. But yeah. the only way I thought I could do that, I had so many demands on me at the time as also executive of my mother's will, different things that were happening, and I had a, a workplace to manage with many psychologists. I thought I needed to get by with less sleep, more energy, be quick thinking, and the thought came into my mind, the only way I could solve these wicked problems, didn't know how it was going to work, but was to invoke a kind of hypermanic condition. I call it a hypermanic-like condition because I wanted to have all my marbles about me, but I wanted to be able to get by with less sleep, more activity, uh, to be able to be very intuitive and come up with um, some uh, different kinds of uh, creative insights to help me deal with these wicked problems that I couldn't solve rationally. So and essentially I'm, induce the mania state by your intent without depression state. I had this idea I could mm-hmm. because while, funnily enough, while my mother was, 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 was dying, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that I, I would give her, I, I wondered how I could help her die well. Yeah. And she'd said this really wacky, weird thing to me one time. She said, look, uh, uh, Chris, your grandmother told me one day one of our family members will be famous. 
And I thought this was complete rubbish. My mother did have a bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought this is just wacky thinking. But while my mother was on her deathbed, I thought, well, I'll, I'll give her what she wants. I said, Mum, you know how you said um, uh, one of our family members be famous? Look, Mum, I think it's me. And she said, you've got it. And I had to back this up somehow. So I thought I'd start to tell her that I had these, like, theories, these new theories that would help change mental health care for the better. Yep. And so, and she said, oh, that's interesting. So I thought, oh, this is good. I only have to keep up this pretense for a little while, tell her a story of how I've created something worthwhile. And while we were sitting there, um, you know, day after day, several weeks, I'd just tell her these stories about how maybe we can change our brain chemistry by thinking a certain way we can create certain kinds of brain transmitters. Like it might be, mm-hmm. I don't know, serotonin for calmness or something else. But also we can open and close our receptors at will. So not only do we produce different chemicals that influence our brain functioning and our mood and everything, but we can also open and close our receptors. I'd never heard anything like that. And this way we can influence our our, um, uh, mental functioning. My mother said, oh, that's very interesting. And then I kind of realised that while I'm telling her this story, this is kind of what I'm looking to do to like bring about some kind of uh, way that I can mm-hmm. be very intuitive and creative in solving problems, not need much sleep, have lots of activity that I can engage and I was twice as busy as normal for different reasons yep. and taking time out to see my mother. And I realised that these stories I'm telling my mother, parallel, it's a parallel with real life, this is what's happening. Now, the long and the short of it is I think that was the most productive, effective period of my life, the wicked problems were solved very well and I thought of it as I was intending to do a Daedalus rather than do an Icarus. I knew it's risky getting into different kinds of mental states that that, that, that might seem more manic, but I thought if I can temper this, like I'm telling my mother these stories, you can allow for how much of this chemical you release, I thought of it like mm-hmm. endogenous endorphins I could create and not be like an Icarus and then fly too close to the sun and fall to the ground. Yep. If I managed it like a hypomanic-like state, lots of energy, not need to sleep, get things done, be creative, mm-hmm. it all worked like a charm. The only thing in the meantime is a few close friends thought I was going nuts. <laughs> many others didn't because I was checking with many psychologist friends and colleagues and say, hey, look, I'm... I'm going through like this bit of an experiment. You know, how does this seem? I thought, oh, some things you said sound a bit odd, but no, then I thought, no, and such and such, and you seem to be writing reports efficiently and things mm-hmm. like that. So, no, I think, think you're probably okay. But a few friends, especially who are medically trained, thought I was nuts, and they, they tried to get together one evening and try and send me off to a psychiatrist to be medicated against my will. No I thought, way. well, that's against everything I've ever believed anyway. How are you going about it? So who's more crazy in this situation, me or you? But mm-hmm. I had to kind of manage it a certain way. So I said to them, look, uh, tell you what, if I don't sleep very well tonight, because funnily enough, that day was the day I had this evidence that I'd sorted all these problems, everything was going to go well. Mm-hmm. I said, if I, I don't sleep tonight, I won't just see that psychiatrist you say, you're suggesting I'll yeah. see this psychiatrist, psychiatrist, and I mentioned someone who they knew 
was against every idea I would have ever had anyway. So I'm saying I'll see the absolute opposite person who I would otherwise see Mm -hmm. if I don't sleep well tonight. Yeah. Well, funnily, if, or in the next couple of days, well, funnily enough, I slept like a baby, as I imagined I would, because all these wicked problems were solved. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to be so busy. But the strange thing was, I didn't know how I was going to switch off this process. And it was like a bit hypermanic. Yeah. Uh, but it's deliberate. Anyway, I got the idea for different reasons. If I look into the sun at dawn as it rises, through the mm-hmm. window, just for half an hour, I'm just intently focusing on the rising uh, uh, orange sun and just think, bring myself into my body, bring myself into my body, ground myself after a few hours. Uh, well, after half an hour, particularly of doing that, I thought, yeah, well, I think that's on track. After a few hours, I felt fine. A couple of days wow. later, all my friends, everyone thought I was fine. Those friends never brought up that they thought I was hypermanic. I'd oversaw my mother's funeral, everything went very well. Everyone thought I related well to everyone else. Now, just a brief other part of this story, six months later there was a bipolar conference mm-hmm. in Melbourne. I thought, I'm curious about this, so I'm going to go to this conference and I'm going to um, see if there's anything that relates to my experience. Well, the conference was very boring and it's all about the usual ideas about genes and medication and, and very mechanical, but there was an intriguing uh, a session where someone said about a person with bipolar disorder, sadly, he'd, he'd gone partially blind. He mm. burnt his retina because a shaman had told him, if you want to reverse a bipolar disorder, look into the sun. And the person mm. presenting this case was saying how crazy an idea that was because he went partially blind. He burnt, burnt his retina. And I'm sitting there amongst all these psychiatrists and others thinking, no, no, don't look at the sun during the middle of the day. You'll burn your retina. You'll go blind looking at it in the dawn or in the evening when, mm. when like, like, as I did. So I'm saying that partly jokingly, but I thought to myself, if these people sitting around me knew what I had done, they'd think I was nuts. But I thought, yeah. how curious that there was that notion that a shaman had which is exactly what I intuitively did to ground myself within a few hours to the point where no one suspected I had a hypermanic condition. So it's like life imitated art in a certain kind of way. These Mm -hmm. funny stories I was telling my mother, uh, it it ultimately, uh, and by the way, I I could be concerned about being famous where I thought that was just rubbish and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it kind of thing. I thought I'd let go go all of that after, uh, uh, after my mother was no longer with us. But I just thought this was remarkably synchronistically confirming. Yeah. When I later learned that receptors can open and close and we can influence our brain chemistry partly through our will, like actors who play happy roles, uh, uh, have more serotonin than at the time than actors who play sad roles. We can influence our brain chemistry, but I, I'd not been taught that at the time. And I just felt it was confirmed by experience after an intuition that was influenced by synchronicity. Wow, what a beautiful and powerful story. It's crazy. And the very fact of you using the sun and then hearing about the sun at this conference is synchronistic by itself. That confirms essentially that you were in the right path and you did the right thing. It's interesting that you are talking about 
our ability to influence our brain chemistry through intent. And that's essentially the nature of the placebo effect, which is essentially when people are getting a drug and they are convinced that this drug would help them, for instance, eliminate a headache, even if it is a placebo, even if it's not a drug, it still works. So essentially, if we are sure and confident enough that something is going to happen, then we can influence our body and brain the same way. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. And the other thing that I look to do, uh, apart from that bipolar conference, is I went to another psychotherapy conference called the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, held mm-hmm. every few years in America. And uh, I went to some sessions by this wonderful psychologist called Ernest Rossi, sadly no longer with us, but he was just a, an absolute genius at understanding the connection of mind and body. Mm-hmm. And from him and his work, I learned that When people took a placebo for depression, then they produced more serotonin, which is like an antidepressant. But if people take a placebo for Parkinson's disease, they produce more dopamine, which is a treatment for Parkinson's. If people take a placebo for pain, they produce more opiates. Now, how does our brain know how to produce what? Mm-hmm. And then if we add to that, we don't just influence the production, but we influence the delivery. It was also through Rossi's uh, work that I learned that our um, uh, receptors, brain receptors, do open and close. I just thought they were open all the time. So yeah. how much chemicals were there that were influenced? So there's far more internal fine-tuning that goes on. And also, even if people know they are taking a placebo, it still works. Mm. Now, this means that rather than people being muddle-headed if they believe in something like that, like I used to think my grandmother was wacky, any ailment people had, she'd said, get the vinegar, get the vinegar, and use the vinegar. Well, now we know it would have been a wonderful placebo for whatever kind of ailment people (laughs) had. It probably nudged things in the right kind of direction. And also it gave people some sense of agency or hope there was something they could do themselves. But so just as an aside, whilst I was going through that Daedalus kind of state, I saw the movie, just by chance, Charlie yep. and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. But wait a minute, this is a metaphor for how our brains work. Willy mm. Wonka is like this mystical, magical kind of process that can produce the different kinds of neurotransmitters, the chocolate. The Oompa Loompas are part of this mechanical process and we know that things like immediate early genes mm-hmm. that influence receptors and, and all the rest of it. One time I thought I'm going to go out on a limb and I'll tell people in a public seminar my ideas about how, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka mm-hmm. is really a metaphor for how our brain chemistry works. During that seminar, it was a little bit disrupted at Geelong West Town Hall because there was a school production going in the larger hall next door. The school production was Charlie Willy Wonka. The no way. So no there way. you go. So I'm only mentioning a tiny, tiny fraction of the kind of coincidence I've experienced about this broader kind of theme. And so when people have experiences like that, it's so compelling to them I would suggest for obvious reasons that you feel 
you just know these things could be true. So that's what the, where the word noetic comes from, a mm-hmm. mystical experience is William James, a prominent psychologist. Yeah. He talked about mystical experience. He was also the first psychologist who started up a laboratory. So he was mm-hmm. very scientific as very well as very mystical. So these things were combined from the earliest phases of um, mainstream psychology, but a lot of the mystical side got lost, mm-hmm. the intuitive side. Mm-hmm. But, but, but uh, anyway, to, to me, when people have those experiences, it's so compelling that within yourself you just it, it's hard to doubt it and, and you're prepared to live your life a little bit by it, just like I mentioned how I was prepared to do that when I faced these wicked problems. But that's also where it really helps to find some like-minded people around you mm-hmm. that you can share some of these stories with who'll be open. And I've learned from others like a mentor friend, I'll call him a mentor. We've met for 30 years and every month or two for lunch and he'd tell me these stories, just remarkable stories. And I think that's just amazing, but I'll never experience that. Mm-hmm. And then one day, like that whole Daedalus thing, I did experience that and I thought, I, I know what this is about because I've, I've spent 20 years hearing stories about this kind of thing, 15 or 20 years. So I've, I've got an idea that there's something a bit grounded with it. Mm-hmm. It really helps to have other people who can be a bit accepting or like a sounding board because we want to be rational as well. We want to check in with ourselves and be grounded. And that's part of the reason why, like on your podcast as well, it's wonderful to be able to tell stories like this so other people know they're not alone and just to have a little bit of an open mind and not just dismiss something that seems weird as as being psychotic or something like that because mm-hmm. half the half the world's population believes in mystical experience in some form or another all religions Mm -hmm. have elements of it and we know they can be sustaining in all sorts of ways so unfortunately psychology and many other disciplines have gone too far in being over rationalistic and uh and i think as carl jung said it's like an illness to lose touch with our intuition and just be overly focused on rationalism and logic there's a whole dimension of life we miss and maybe there's some superpowers we miss, like I call it the power of supra-rational thinking, not less mm-hmm. than rational, mm-hmm. uh, not irrational, supra-rational. Sometimes it works out better than rational, including for dealing with some wicked problems. Yeah, and I guess when it comes to synchronicity, it's not the matter of believing it in it. It's an opportunity to actually experience it and when you experience something especially on a regular basis it it becomes your truth right it's not something that someone told you and then you believed or not it becomes something more serious and something more real exactly natalia i think what you're saying is so important for any aspect of um uh, uh, psychology and understanding ourselves which is a fundamental truth to go on our experience So I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist primarily. That was my core training. It's the main kind of scientific conferences I've presented at. And that basically means we check our experience against everyday life like hypotheses. We check our thinking. So if we're depressed and we think, I'm no good, the future's terrible, nothing will ever work, we actually test it out. Am I no good in every way? Have I never done anything right? Or, you know, no one likes me. Well, what's the evidence for that? We're always looking for people to check their uh, thinking 
against the evidence from their experience. So with synchronicity, I'm, I'm suggesting nothing different. Yeah. I'm suggesting people check their experience against everyday life and check with other people and look to be grounded. Yeah. But in my experience, when people do check that, but they also have a degree of openness mm-hmm. and they're prepared to use their intuitive awareness as well, then sometimes we have these other experiences that can't well be rationally explained. Mm-hmm. Just because something can't be rationally explained doesn't mean it's irrational. It yes. certainly doesn't mean it's crazy. Of course, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Mm. I would like to come back a little bit on the topic of placebo, which now made me think that I can just, you know, create empty pills and tell my mother that it will help her with her migraine and <laughs> it might work actually. And also other implications on how you can influence your receptors in your brain so that your brain produces the chemicals that you actually need. And this can have implications then to for instance, drug use. So what I'm trying to say is that some people, for instance, take psychedelics to induce alternative mental state. Now, if we have those receptors that are open to the components of the psychedelic drugs, it means that they are already there, those receptors. So it means that our brain can actually generate the same drug components by itself without external drug. Yes. Right. You've explained that very well, Natalia, and um, that, that's one thing to me that, as you said it there, it's you, you said it delightfully and clearly, and it's kind of like it's obvious. But for me, that was like a revelation to think about that at that stage, that, wait a minute, if we've got receptors that respond to some external drug, well, they must have been built for something in the first place. Mm-hmm. There must have been that drug present in some endogenous form in the first place or wouldn't it make no sense through evolution to have that receptor? It's not going to be a meaningless receptor just waiting for something to be invented that happens to fit it. Mm -hmm. We must have had some endogenous kind of way of producing the same kind of chemicals just like you suggested. And that's what's interesting with things like antidepressant medication, for example. I've seen many clients who've benefited greatly from antidepressant medication. It's just that they don't all need that for mild or moderate depression. But many with severe depression especially, antidepressant medication for many people can be very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. But when they look at the studies of how much of the influence we can account for from the medication itself rather than placebo effects, placebo effects get around about 75 to 80% of the benefit of the actual antidepressant medication. Well, hey, sometimes that extra 20% will make a huge difference. And if we look at those numbers, for some, for a proportion of people, the actual medication will make all the difference compared to the placebo. But if Mm -hmm. we look at it across the board, the placebo medication or the placebo can mimic a large proportion of the effects. Now, that tells us something that they're, oh, they're endogenous ways, they're internal ways that we can influence with our mind-body interactions, that we can influence our well-being and our brain chemistry. The unfortunate thing is drug companies don't benefit from that understanding of course, of course. getting out there. They, they make their money 
billions and billions yeah. of dollars from people thinking, oh, no, you need this external thing, which reduces people's sense of agency and it undermines people's appreciation of the wonder of their minds. Yeah. And so I think that's really unfortunate because more than 90% of the training of medical practitioners would be funded by drug companies. And yeah. so, um, and just one other aside, William James, again, in, interested in mystical states and understanding the psyche, he started off experimenting with nitrous oxide. Mm -hmm. But What's after it? a while, he mm -hmm. found that he could have some similar kind of benefits from meditation. So he swapped from nitrous oxide to meditation. That's an example of someone appreciating more what our minds can do themselves, including around our biology and brain chemistry. And what this drug is for? Uh, so nitrous oxide, well, yep. that, that can be used for, um, uh, 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 say, uh, uh, pain at the dentist, that kind of mm -hmm. thing is where most people would come across it, but it also can have mind-altering effects, mm. like um, uh, psychedelic kind of effects. I see. And, uh, I see. And also just finishing on this ability to influence our brain chemistry by opening closing receptors, I guess this also extrapolates to influencing potentially our genes because genes can be also activated or deactivated. And this goes with epigenetics that actually is confirming this possibility right now. Yes, that's a very important um, understanding, Natalia. And I found that mind-blowing when, again, I learned that from Ernest Rossi. It's not what just what genes that we have, but mm -hmm. whether they're activated or not, whether they're switched on or switched off. Yeah. And Ernest Rossi developed certain kind of hypnotic techniques that he tested with scientists on his team, like he had a mm -hmm. chemist, he had a physicist, he was a very rigorous scientist. And what he found is that these meditative-like, hypnotic-like techniques could switch on or off 200 genes. They demonstrated that they were genes related to schizophrenia, pain, dopamine pathways, all sorts wow. of things to do with our physical and mental functioning. So he demonstrated that I think it was in a 45-minute kind of intervention uh, that you could switch on, certainly um, no more than an hour and a half, that you could switch on and switch off all of these different kinds of, or at least activate them. And so it just shows there's this whole soup that we have within us in terms of our genetic makeup and that there, we know that there are about a thousand genes that influence anxiety and depression, and they're actually the same ones in many cases. It's just the circumstances that can influence different factors, influence whether it nudges more to anxiety or depression or an overlap. So this whole biological soup going on, and we're clearly influenced by our genes, but it's not this passive mechanical notion of, oh, I'm doomed because mm -hmm. I've had two severe uh, experience, episodes of severe depression in my life. The odds are meant to be that you're most likely to have another time like that. Well, after I recovered from that hospitalization with depression, I had experiences that I just felt convinced in a noetic way that I would never get depressed again the rest of my life. That was mm -hmm. almost 35 years ago, well over 30 years ago. So we don't just have to passively 
think, oh, I've got the wrong genes. I'm a depressed type person. Or, mm-hmm. hey, my family members have schizophrenia, so that means I'm doomed to get that myself. Now, there are yep. lots of things that we can do, including physical exercise, including good social um, uh, contacts and interaction, drawing on our supports, um, having a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives in some ways. There are all these other things that we can do that help manage our biology very well. And so I think that's where psychiatric medications, a whole range of things, can be very important and helpful as an adjunct, but not take over the, the, the field as though that's the most important thing that you do. First of all, get medication, say, for depression. Uh, yep. There's been way too much emphasis on those mechanical, passive-type models. Yeah, so basically from helplessness and disempowerment to empowerment and noticing other things around you that you can influence with your intent. I'm curious somehow, how do you influence it? Is it you try to think that you're fine? Like I'm just trying to imagine a depressed person who would be inspired by this podcast and his question would be, okay, what do I do now? If drugs are not that important, how can I influence my state? Is it just about noticing the synchronicity uh, or there are other ways to advise those people? Yes, I think there are other more reliable ways, and that's where we have lots of information, like through our Psych Spills and Silver Linings website. We look to convey what are some of the more reliable ways for de- dealing with things. So w- w- with synchronicity, I'll mention as well, partly because I think people more likely experience it when you do feel like you're on the right track in life. It's not just then, but it's particularly people often experience it more so. Uh, in my experience, when I was depressed and many other people when they're depressed, I, I think often are not experiencing much synchronicity. There's not much uplifting that, that's going on at the time. Yeah. And I think that they're far more reliable ways, for example, from cognitive behavioural therapy as well that help. Certainly drawing on social supports is important. Our connections with other people make a difference. But physical exercise is one of the first things because if people are depressed, if people engage in moderate physical exercise – like just say a, a jog for, say, 40 minutes three or four times a week, that has as much benefit as antidepressant medication for mm. mild or moderate depression. Mm. So physical exercise creates more serotonin and dopamine for a start. Then I think looking to get recognised where there are stresses in your life and looking to contain demands in some ways. What support can you have to deal with that? What strategies can you use to address it? And look, noticing that when you have negative thoughts, not getting too sucked into those thoughts as being the truth or facts, all of us can do is stepping back from our thoughts and reflecting on them rather than over-identifying with them. And so there's a part of us that can sit back and, and consider, well, how well does this fit with our experience? Or are these kind of thoughts working for me? And when people are depressed, they can pick up a lot. They can learn to pick up on their negative thoughts and counter them to some extent, or at least look to tune themselves more outwardly to the environment, even distracting themselves and being engaged in activities in the world, even if they don't feel like it much, just doing what they can, rather than just dwelling on the negative thoughts that by definition are likely to be distorted and helpless. So yeah. we looked at ways of helping people get out of their their head 
more oriented around them, engaging in activities that give a sense of achievement or pleasure. So I think often do the more reliable kind of things that affect people's mental health later on. I think synchronicity often comes in later and in very personal and idiosyncratic ways that aren't necessarily um, predictable. So I don't tell my clients try and experience more synchronicity. I'm more, I listen out for it if they give a hint for it. And sometimes I might indirectly let people know I'm interested in stories about coincidences or they might bring up a story that's got a coincidence in it and I might ask them if Mm -hmm. they have other experiences like that. So I more gently lead into that. People know I've written a book on it and I've talked about it locally. So more and more clients just bring it up directly with me or some clients see me because they know of my interest in that particular area. But I don't push for that so much because a lot of other very reliable, more reliable and consistent ways of assisting our mental health is just that when we do experience that dimension, there are ways that we can draw on it to help our mood and our motivation and activities and our sense of purpose in life and that helps us achieve, helps our connections with people. Thank you. Thank you for this helpful advice. And as we're moving uh, towards the end, could you tell us more about the work you're involved in? I know that you're participating in the Coincidence Project and maybe you can share about other uh, projects and things that you're involved in. That would be very interesting. Thank you, Natalia. So my main everyday work is being involved in our regular psychology practice in Geelong where we see adults and children mainly with anxiety and depression, trauma reactions, relationship problems. And so with that, um, uh, over the years, I've looked to um, uh, draw on the learning from that 40 years plus of experience and colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we write lots of blogs and articles, try and disseminate this information on our website at chrismackey.com.au. So we've got a resources section that's got lots of blogs and mm-hmm. also a link to our Psych Spiels and Silver Lining podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're on 99 episodes at the moment. My son, Rowan, he's away on holiday, so we've got to wait for episode 100 to come up. We do it together, which is a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, But that looks to, again, convey uh, information about that. The Coincidence Project, thank you for mentioning that because it's a collaboration between authors and others interested in synchronicity from around the world. It includes the psychiatrist Bernie Beitman, who founded it as a psychiatrist from Virginia. There are um, other mental health professionals, scientists, executive coaches, others who draw on synchronicity in the everyday work. So we've just got a website going uh, called uh, uh, thecoincidenceproject.net and we're going to have a launch party soon, which will be over by the time this podcast uh, comes to air. But on that uh, website, we'll be talking about seminars coming up, including one I'll be doing uh, next month on synchronicity and thriving. And uh, and th- there'll be monthly seminars that come up after that. But it's, the website also encourages people to tell their stories of synchronicity so people know they're not alone. They can draw on that support environment So Mm -hmm. the Coincidence Project is one of the main things I'm involved in. And the one other thing I'll mention is there's a mental health documentary called How to Thrive. It's a positive psychology documentary that came out late last year. And Mm -hmm. people, if people Google How to Thrive, they'll find information about that documentary that, for example, in Australia, 
people can host screenings if there's enough local people who want to see that. But that's taking people with significant mental health problems and looking at how positive psychology can be applied to uh, help them. And so, yeah, through different synchronistic experiences, I, I became involved. I was invited mm-hmm. to be involved in that project. Thank you, Chris. I will put all the links to your resources to the description of the show. Anything else that you would like to share with the listeners to conclude this conversation? The the main sense I get, having had the opportunity to talk about this further, is that um, it's people tuning into themselves. It's our own inner kind of awareness. Now, we're all different Like I've learned over the years, I'm pretty weird compared to me. I thought I was just so mainstream and mundane because a lot of the work I do is quite conventional. All of us have our quirks and differences and some of that could be very good. So we want to be grounded and connect up with other people and check our ideas. But I think we all have a core of awareness and in therapy we see this. The best therapy is when people can come up with their own solutions. And I think the most effective therapies, therapies and the most effective therapists help draw people out with their own kind of solutions, give with the framework and some help rather yeah. than some cook, cookie cutter approach that says, if you do this, then you'll be like that. Or you should mm-hmm. think like this and then you'll react like that. And I think that synchronicity is just one of many, many ways that can give us like art and beauty and creating things of being um, respectful and honouring our individuality and expressing that in some way. And so as part of everyday life, those who experience synchronicity and tell their stories, that's part of an artful, creative way of, of living. Thank you, Chris. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming to the show. It was a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And best of luck in all your work and all your projects and continue spreading wisdom across the world. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Natalia. I really enjoyed it.